Hi, I'm James. And I'm Drew. And welcome to Graphic Support Group, a mindful podcast for the design industry and the self, where empathy and the creative cloud meet. Join us as we delve into the mind and soul of graphic design, from PSDs to PTSD. This is Graphic Support Group. Drew. And we're here again for another fun-filled episode of Graphic Support Group. Um, today we have a wonderful guest, Caitlin Chan, who is a cartoonist, comic artist, writer, and storyteller based in Hong Kong. Um, she has work and writings published in The New Yorker Online, Margins, Popula, and Arts Asia Pacific, and then probably a whole list of other publications that we're not mentioning here. Um, that's both self-published and um, published by wherever they're published. Um, but I love this self-description. Um, I tell stories about quiet moments, becoming the self, moving through daily life, and the porosity of pain and pleasure. Um, I just thought that was a beautiful way of describing one's work, and I'd like to dig into that a little later. Um, but as we were kind of catching up um, Caitlin and I met through a panel uh, earlier this year in April for the Vermont College of Fine Arts, which is affiliated with a few of our other guests like Ray Masaki and Nikki Ewan. Um, and I really enjoyed her work and especially how she talked about her work. So we had to invite her here today on Graphics. Welcome. Caitlin. We had to. It was an we obligation. Had to, yeah. We had. We, <laughs> no, it was not an obligation. We, we chose. We, we are very happy to have you. Thank you for coming. Is it and time nice for to meet you. Sure. I have a question to make. At the hi everyone, I'm Caitlin. Um, the confession is that I'm like a failed graphic designer. Like that was what I oh, wanted to do when I first graduated yeah. college. But now I'm a professional mm-hmm. cartoonist, which I think suits me better. But I just feel like I really need the support on this podcast because <laughs> <laughs> it taps into all my failed ambitions that you, your previous guest Rebecca knows well about because she was one of the professors in graphic design at Wesleyan. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I'm just here as a failed graphic designer and burgeoning cartoonist to share some vibes with, with Drew and James. That's actually a perfect way to segue into one of our new recurring questions. <laughs> How has your attitude towards design been lately? Especially now that you've kind of taken a different trajectory. (laughs) Um, I think most of us, especially those of us living in very metropolitan urban places, we actually have very intimate relationship with with design and visual culture. Mm -hmm. And we might not name it as such, but um, there are ways that we get attached. It's like very emotional because I think most people think of designers as clinical or that there's a kind mm-hmm. of remove, especially when um, engaging with clients and needing to keep a kind of professional collegial nature, which is obviously important. In your episode with Ray, you talked a lot about uh, like etiquette and work etiquette, which I thought was really interesting, like email etiquette, totally. don't be too chill. Right. Um, right. But basically back <laughs> to what I was saying about design, I still feel like it's very strong because uh, some of you who visited Hong Kong might know that our typography and signage and visual culture is like very overwhelming and sensory and yeah. that there's like 
a lot of mix between hand hand calligraphy and typography done digitally, but also like it's in thinking about like Shanzai aesthetic, like fake Chinese object yeah. aesthetic. Yeah. Sometimes I th- I look at the Yale MFA stuff and I'm like, y'all are doing that. Like y'all are borrowing <laughs> or interested in di- appropriating. And often it's by cool like Asian Americans too. But I just think yeah. there's an interesting current and flow of trends and like interesting compositions and, and logo types that are still very present. So I'd say that I'm still very like opinionated about it. Like, let's say I bought a microwave recently and I didn't want to buy the one with like the ugly type on it. And my mom yeah, was like, yeah. but the other one is a superior microwave. And I was like, we're going to look at this every day. And that logo is too ugly to like share right. in our kitchen. So <laughs> I guess it still pops up in like small moments. That's awesome. Cool. I mean, it's actually funny that you mentioned that because I don't know when this epiphany happened for me, but like there was this big epiphany when I, I think it was like maybe second or third year of grad school. So it was probably like 2015 or something, but where I was like, wow, all of these cool designers are using standard Asian typefaces, but the Roman characters of the Asian typefaces (laughs) to like make a point about like, freeware or like um like it was sort of like a class commentary but it was like very uh kind of forced (laughs) to and then i was like i'm gonna do that that's cool but and i still i mean i use a lot of those typefaces still to this day because i think it's just fun like i think it's like fun to you that use them and nobody knows what they are and they're basically free uh, but I just found that to be like, it is like very appropriative in that sense where it's just like, is this cool because it looks like a mall in, you know, Shenzhen or something? I was thinking about um, like techno orientalism in the way that like I was thinking, has East Asia, as someone who's lived in East Asia predominantly, like caught up to what um, the Western imagination of East Asia was like? I don't know because we were last year was the year of Akira actually that's a Japanese creation but I'm thinking like have, have we caught up to the imaginary world of Blade Runner sometimes and I just think about that because I think that's part of graphic design too is like I think a lot of designers of Asian heritage have questions about like maybe Asian futurism or basically like whether they want their work to harken back to like very old notions of Asia or very like mm-hmm. new like counterfeit notions of Asia or like manufacturing right, right. global supply chain. Like I, right. I kind of sometimes think what would it be like to design without those kinds of like social geopolitical like connotations. But I mean, I, in my graphic design classes, I would get told that my work looked very Chinese and I don't like huh. think of myself as a Chinese person when I'm just living my life. But then right, right. If you're the only like Chinese person in your class or like you're one of right. two Chinese people in your class of 20 people in like new England, then there's like this mm-hmm. heightened awareness of like, how how Chinese your graphic design might be, which I think is like an mm-hmm. interesting question, yeah. I and mean, those Roman characters are very cool in the, in the Chinese, Japanese, Korean fonts, yeah. Or an interesting subsect, I think, is also the, maybe this is a more of a West Coast thing, but the way that, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of Eastern medicine is being reappropriated by, um, like, different American wellness brands. And, like, my uh, mom... Oh, yeah, was, I have noticed like, that trend lately. Yeah, eating a lot of cordyceps, which for some of you might know, they're like dried insects. And like, that was a thing that's part of my traditional Chinese medicine, like life, mm-hmm. like just growing up and eating those. And then Gwyneth Paltrow obviously has gotten into them. And she's oh, no. you know, on goop, like basically prop, not prop, like 
doing this propaganda for these like brands being like, oh, isn't this great? Like there's this, you know, Caucasian woman in LA who's like selling cordyceps and it's like so prohibitively expensive. But the graphic design and the packaging, I think, is what seduces people into buying the different cordyceps in that jar versus the cordyceps they could get in another part of LA from a Asian area. Right. So I was just thinking like, wow, it's so powerful to create a various, like, I don't even know what, because we have corporate Memphis to describe those like blobby Facebook people, but I'm like, what is the word we have for the visual language of corporate American wellness? I think it's so interesting, all those pastels and sans serifs and also just like the kind of copywriting is always like, you know, uplift your moon or something like that. I find it really fascinating. Why don't you try to coin it right now? Maybe the term is like borrowed from Lord's new album, which is like a satirical take on that culture, right? Maybe it's solar power is like that kind of, because it's like, it's both something that I think could read as soft, but it's very hard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Also goop core. Well, that's the same thing for like oils. Like I live in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn and it's like, you can walk down the street and buy like any fragrance, any oil known to man for like no money and then you can buy that same one in like a nice package at like a fancy clothing store for like fifty dollars for like the smallest amount you know like aesop it's like you could actually make a lot of those fragrances yourself like can i tell a story about aesop with aesop i i went to a a hot pot restaurant recently and there was a antiseptic soap pump which you know most restaurants are expected to have and I pumped it. And then the logo, which is done in that humanist Aesop font, said, mm-hmm, Asepso. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is so fucking <laughs> It's like a bootleg Aesop. So I took a photograph. But then I do my research before I, I you know, talk SHIT on the internet, right? Yeah, so yeah. I did my research before I put it in my Instagram story. And Asepso predates Aesop. But oh, it's wow. like almost the exact same combination of letters. Whoa. So now I'm thinking, yeah. where did Aesop get inspired? Did they know about Asepso, <laughs> which is like a... I think it's a British industrial antiseptic soap, which the packaging oh. even in the early 1950s had that font. So I was like, this is so interesting. Like, I just kind of wanted to also like a just general question. So, um, yeah, how do you identify yourself? It's I think it's complicated, isn't it, James? Especially when yes. you've like totally. moved around and you have like a diasporic identity. I think like... In very simple terms, most people would read me as like, oh, your dad was Chinese and your mom's Chinese. So you're like another Chinese person from Hong Kong, Cantonese person from Mm -hmm. Hong Kong. But my dad is from like, his family's from Hong Kong. And my mom's parents actually immigrated to Australia. She's like Chinese Australian. So having, you know, parents that speak different languages and come from different cultures, I think is a big thing for people who are like mixed race or like, let's say they're adoptees. But like, I'm not either of those things, but I am someone whose parents had like interesting cultural differences (laughs) Um, I guess I'm just a nerdy Cantonese lady as of now with identities still shifting in flux. But I think that's the thing is like, I used to think if I failed to become a graphic designer, like I would like lose all my sense of like interest in graphic design or like not be able to hang out with graphic designers who do kind of seem like a cult. Right. But then you know what? Things work out. I'm still friends with graphic designers and you can still like love and be interested in something, even if you don't make money from it. So I guess I just identify as a great point. An art worker, someone who's like very interested in making things. and Yeah, I noticed that because it said on your website, like you, I forget what the first part, I guess it said illustrator and art. Uh, yeah, I, I sort of oscillate between like 
gallery worker, art worker, cultural worker, because I've worked at like nonprofit art spaces in like a curatorial role and also in like a gallery in a more sales role. But I just kind of think I kind of borrowed that from my my professor in Japan. His name is Taro Nettleton. And he just he self-described as a, as a cultural worker because he, he produces like cultural knowledge, but also is educator and also like a skateboarder who also kind of does stuff in fashion. So I was thinking like he's one of those porous people who I feel has like a really hybrid way of like being part of the world and like that's really exciting to me so if you say like I mean and maybe it sounds pretentious to call yourself like a design worker but like maybe let's just say you're not a standard graphic designer who only makes work for clients like let's say maybe you do a lot of pro bono work or you do design consulting for like small mutual aid gorgs like that's something other than just like being at an ad agency or studio so I think articulating that is helpful wanted to ask about the identity question mostly because I'm personally curious about your international background, uh, probably because I have a mm. similar background, having been born in the States to uh, immigrant Korean parents and then traveling back to Korea in, for middle school and high school and going to international school here. And then, you know, my, my biography plan goes back and forth between Korea and, um, and the States. Um, but you're based in Hong Kong now. Um, but you, I know you studied in, at Wesleyan in New England. It's, it's Connecticut, right? Mm-hmm. I kind of want to like problematize the name international school because I, I feel like I can criticize international schools because I'm a product of one and I'm like a beneficiary of all the privilege and um, exclusivity that it affords. And, yeah, you know, when I think of international now, having like, let's say, had the privilege to go to Wesleyan, and also I had some friends whose parents were affiliated with the UN. And I'm not saying every school needs to be like the UN, but there are only like right. three nations represented at the international school. Oh, totally. Right? totally yeah. It's like the nation of the USA, maybe Canada, um, Australia, sometimes England. Yeah. So it just sort yeah. of feels as if we need to be specific and name like the administrators, principals, and like leadership of the school as like predominantly Euro American with some mm-hmm. Chinese people often who have degrees from Euro-American institutions and just like mm-hmm. name that as a seat of like educational eliteness and power that right. like, I was on the bus yesterday and I was like, why is this swimming course in Hong Kong called Stanford, right? Like I'm sure you <laughs> see the same thing, James, being in South yeah, Korea. Yeah, we have the same thing in South Korea, yeah. Like English schools named like, like, uh, Princeton, or there's actually okay. Here's a great example. There's a dentist that's like UPenn dentistry because the <laughs> dentist there went to UPenn and they want to like. Um, there's a wow. there's a there's an expression in Korea called isaboya, like to have, like it looks like you're bountiful kind of. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of that here, for sure. I mean, frankly, there is a lot of that everywhere though. But it's funny that yeah. it isn't. <laughs> it's there too like they, like yeah. there's all these places that are like harvard like whatever all over the states but it's much different <laughs> to have it be <laughs> that far removed yeah and just for our guests uh when we say international school it's uh a western education based school like k through 12 usually in a foreign country so um like for me, it was a, you know, I went to an American style school in South Korea, and it's supposed to be for foreigners living in, in, a, in that country. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Or people um, who are from the, who have like, your parents have like Korean roots, but at the same time, 
hope for their children to, you know, be able to access a certain uh, lifestyle or set of career options that are made more oh, really? possible with, um, like, I guess I would call it like English speaking privilege. It's a very important thing mm -hmm. to acknowledge in, in uh, Asia where, you know, there's still an association. Like, I think some people think that this is not true anymore because of how um, moneyed China is. Like they think like, you know, the global world order has significantly shifted, which yeah. like since the British empire, which I think is like, could be debated for a long time. But I think it's important yeah. to remember that like, just being able to speak English in a European or American accent, like opens a ridiculous amount of doors. Oh and yeah, totally. I just think it's possible to like be grateful for the international school education you have because it's you know mm -hmm. probably the reason why I'm talking to you two right now like right as, as two people you two are fluent in English and if I did not have the opportunities to learn English to that degree I wouldn't be here in this position and it's possible mm -hmm. to be grateful and you know we're complex people who can hold two thoughts with two hands and the yeah. other thought I have is that um it's not right for like small privileged enclaves in different cities to like um, sometimes kind of like look down on or like not encourage um, students to be engaged with like the rest of the city like yeah you know, derogatory yeah, comments about different. certain districts and neighborhoods or yeah. not allowing students to speak what is considered a local language Cantonese as yeah. much like, it wasn't like it wasn't allowed but there well, there was tension between students who wanted to speak Cantonese and teachers and administrators who'd be like it's Mandarin or English here because those were right, the two right. languages of instruction at Chinese international school was like predominantly English with Mandarin classes taught in Mandarin. And it's very right. specific to teach people Mandarin in a place that is Cantonese, but it's because right. already even at the time I joined the school in 1999, there's an awareness that China's business powers are going to increase exponentially. So it is more mm. technically, educationally advantageous, considered to be in quotes, to teach that kind of like language, to give you a kind of yeah. in if, I mean, a lot of my friends do business in China now. If, if, the, if yeah. they're the kind of people who graduated from international schools, they're going to be likely working in law finance medicine engineering so yeah. like there's like a sort of like these sort of keys you're, you're supposed to be given to um right. go to these different worlds but as james said like it's not exactly like you can just bifurcate all the parts of yourself and be like it's okay i'm just constantly code switching and it's fine like you can you can do that but it feels like sometimes odd because sometimes what you're being taught is to look down on people like the people who you come from like like your your own ancestors or your own lineage like like my grandparents were restaurant workers but like there's often like a really terrible attitude towards service people that's inculcated in these like elite schools right it's sort of like there are these tiers of society and somehow you are already on the track to the first tier so it's like mm -hmm. you can therefore like be disregarding or rude to other people and i'm like it's not a good attitude to cultivate but it's just like a very i don't know capitalist thing that i think is worth thinking about like in east asia what is the tension between not just quote expatriates and locals but locals who have access to like the third interstitial tier of english speakingness but passing as a local but being able to go to spaces and institutions that like would not necessarily include or be encouraging to people who speak english less accented with like an asian mm -hmm. accent so i just think these are like weird things, maybe without like clear answers, but like worth interrogating because it's not good to like look down on like your own people. Like it feels really bad. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, that manner of exclusivity is a whole nother thing. But, you know, just to give you an idea, Drew, it's like literally my school is like on top of a really steep hill in a neighborhood. And like it has like a, like I, I encounter more and more Korean 
like native Korean people who I don't know why I use that word native, but like <laughs> you know like Korean people who kind of know about our school, and there's all these like rumors and like oh that's where like the Chebor kids go or which the, it's true, it's not false, but like that kind of separation really really splinters your connection with the local culture and the and the, and the local kind of um, environment and. You know, I, I have qualms about that, too, because, like, for me, like, I went to school with, like, super rich people, and I, at the time, our family was doing well, but, like, I always maintained this sort of, like, middle-class attitude because that's sort of where we came from. Um, but, like, I also struggled with that, like, kind of identity crisis with, like, my peers who like have no have like complete blinders on in terms of like the local sort of classes and stratification that they're sort of a part of. Um, but yeah, like I'm not being super articulate about it, but I have lots of feelings about it. <laughs> it's also um, interesting to hear you guys talk about that because I feel like in America, a similar thing happens like at RISD in particular, I feel like that happened a lot where it's like, you know, we're, we're here, but we're not really here. Like Providence is like a very oh, storied yeah. working class town, you know? And mm-hmm. also there are a lot of uh, East Asian students at RISD who, so there's like these sects of like, there's like three different layers of that too, where it's like going the yeah. other way, where it's yeah. like Americans doing that to Americans. But then it's like these other subcultures of students doing it to subcultures within the school and then there's like it's like pretty i mean risi is a perfect example like the the campus is like feels super cut off from the rest of this the the um the the city and like does not engage with the city at all i think they've gotten a lot better now that like buildings are downtown and whatnot but yeah that that kind of um enclave attitude i think is is really unhealthy at times there is like so much about what you were describing to Caitlin, like the the class and capitalist influence on all of these like educational structures. Cause it's like, you know, I would say maybe 50% of RISD is international of that yeah. 50% is like yeah. 45% maybe is from Korea. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> and then it's like, there's just so many interesting questions that are raised when you're in a place like that where it's just hard to understand how it's not all just about money in a lot of sense yeah i think educational institutions as like a seat of conferring social power are are really like interesting because also i think the state of almost all private universities is currently one of like deep anxiety about Mm -hmm. um you know, endowment and resources and like the cost of sustaining universities, which continually brand themselves also not just as educational institutions, but like a lifestyle. Right. And like, I think when I was at university in the US, there's like a lot of anxieties about affording things like new gyms and new cafeterias when it's always like nice to have like things that work, but you also don't need it to be like five stars. Like, I guess. Right. I don't know, but then some people do expect that. Like some people who are maybe paying the full tuition expect things to be um, like like a hotel. And I just think right, right. It's, it's strange because like the attitude that was grilled into me from my grandparents was like, going to university is a huge deal. Like people mm. started going to university in my mom's generation in my family. And still that was also mm. a huge deal because at the time my mom and her brother 
were growing up, it was free. Like it was, there was yeah. like this period of time in the late 19, I think mid early 1980s, early 1980s in Australia, where the government was like, why don't we subsidize all tertiary education? And they did. Right. And then of course they stopped because universities were like, let's become private like corporations. But I think, you know, at that time, it was like university was really seen as like a magnificent privilege to be taken seriously, which was endowed into me when I went to university. And then I had, you know, I was aware of my peers who just like got stoned and didn't even go to class. And I, I felt like there was like this weird tension between like, how can there be people who are the children of like, at Wesleyan at least, Hollywood producers, New York executives, like people who like write for the New York Times and like New Yorker, blah, blah, blah. blah. And they're like, not even here with me in this 16 person yeah. seminar. Like, yeah. I would feel like this weird sense of like, dang, I have to fly here. And it's, it's a privilege to fly here. But it's also like, it's just so much trouble to get here and live here yeah. on my own and, and not see mom till like graduation, you know, and then like, other people like going down to New York and New Jersey for the weekend, or like some people even had their parents wash their clothes, which is honestly fine if you're too busy, I guess. But I remember feeling this tension between like, but then again, I was also more privileged than like work study students who had to um, like work a certain amount of minimum hours, which I was not required to do because of my financial yeah. privilege. So like I would talk to students like that and they would tell me like, do you even know how hard it is to like actually have a job while I'm also at university? So I think that there was like an important like cross dialogue happening between all the different groups of like, what does being at this university mean to you? And is it just like an easy thing to check off the list? Or is it like something that you are like fighting tooth and nail to maintain every day? was like worth exploring, I think, because these, I think most people like to talk about millennials as if they're a flat group, like as if most millennials are spoiled and frivolous and luxurious. When I'm like, there are so many millennials who are like on the verge of like financial precarity that are not talked about in this like avocado toast rhetoric. I don't know. <laughs> I like the avocado toast rhetoric. <laughs> It's a new day. Relax. Rest your hands gently in your lap. Breathe in and slowly let go. You have confidence. You have clarity. You have Adobe InDesign. Today, you are going to make creative decisions that will bolster your client's value and hopefully yours as well. You've been waiting for a project like this for years. Now is your chance. Shine bright. Upgrade your portfolio and upgrade yourself. Curious, just like 
of the many stories you told, like which one has been particularly hard for you, like sticks out in your memory, was really hard for you to tell um, in a like public forum or form, yeah. Juicy question, James. Um, <laughs> a good way to like bring it back to like the interview. Sorry, yeah, going yeah. on really fun tangents, but uh, or worthwhile tangents. But there's this um, self-published comic. I pitched it around, and it, it was not accepted anywhere. Um, but I guess it's kind of called like Gong Lurie, which means like Kong girl, which is like a derogative term for a Hong Kong young woman here. And I think when you make work that I'm in the position of making work in English about predominantly Chinese speaking people or like about Asians, which most people presume not to speak English. So there's this like sort of knowledge that a lot of my work is being read by people who uh, might not share the same heritage or cultural background as me. And then Gong Lui is really about like directly looking at misogyny in Hong Kong in a way that it's very much culturally baked in here to the way that we, um, talk about not only women's appearances, but like what their social role is and uh, like what women who pay a lot of attention to their appearance are doing. Because there's so much like really mean harassing and joking about women's like vanity and trying. And there's a complete lack of awareness of how that trying is necessary to like get to a certain level of like social survivability here. And I went to like a Basically, that comic was hard to make because I felt like I was calling out Hong Kongers and like we already like don't have like the most amazing or full and rich representation in global like public discourse anyway. So I didn't want to be like, hey, look at like our internalized misogyny. But then I, I felt like I, I worked through it in the comic by mainly dealing with my own like relationship as a slightly more like androgynous woman to these other more femme women and how I was actually projecting a lot of my own insecurities onto them. So I think by examining my own like shame and internalized misogyny, I could not seem like I was pointing the finger at the rest of Hong Kong, but like kind of doing a little bit of pointing at that and then pointing it back at myself. Um, but I felt more vindicated about that comic recently because I went to a comedy show recently and I wasn't aware, like my first one since the pandemic began and I wasn't aware that like the lineup was actually uh, five men. I had gone because this headliner was a male comedian who I follow. And I was thinking, okay, five men lineup, let's see how it is. And like, it was just like old school sexism again and again, like really super degrading jokes about women they were uh, dating or attracted to. And basically just saying like really like incelly jokes, like, yeah, she didn't give me her number. So like, maybe I should like call the police on her. Like just like really weird stuff or like just saying like, Oh, women on Tinder, like they seem so nice when you meet them and they're so like ugly and stupid. And like, I was just like looking around being like, this is a huge comedy show. Like there's like maybe a hundred of us here and like, a few people are laughing. Most people look uncomfortable and are just scrolling on their phones. But that was when I realized, like, we are still in a position of giving men money to go on stage to, like, talk about and denigrate women as a whole social group and just be like, yeah, I mean, like, things I would do to women if I really could. I was like, this is so scary. Like, as a woman sitting here, I thought I could just go to a comedy show in 2021, like, have a good time, whatever. And then I was actually felt, like, targeted and sad, like, the whole time. So I went home and I was like, Oh, misogyny is still a problem. Like, obviously it's still a problem because you still hear about like horrible, horrific kidnappings and rapes every now and then, but that's not like the everyday vibe of life generally. But then you go to a comedy show and you're just like, there are some people who like, who are attracted to women yet really hate them in some ways because they kind of want them to like suffer and feel embarrassed and would like 
tell like unfiltered stories about them at a comedy show. Like I imagined being the kind of woman who went on a date with one of these comedians and then being turned into like a huge mean punchline in front of like a hundred people. And I just thought, I guess I still had a grounds to make that comic because I think when you're making comic about like social ills, there's always this anxiety about like, I'm probably overthinking it. Like maybe it's not even that big of a problem. And I'm just like making up a big problem in my head and people are going to think, oh, look, another millennial like complaining about society when it's always actually been fine. And then I went to that comedy show and I was like, wait, actually, sometimes things are still really bad. And like sometimes people can't see the fact that like the accumulation of this misogyny is resulting in like the lowered status of women in our society. Like they they just see like the occasional women CEO and they're like, you guys have everything now. And it's like, actually, <laughs> like women are still being asked to like, do like unspeakable things all the time just as a way of like normally continuing in society and like maybe that's not good so I don't know I just yeah I also like went to some art galleries yesterday and I wasn't wearing makeup which I think is fine but also like I'm a gallerist and I feel like I have the right to like go to art galleries and then people like talk to me as if I was like gum on a shoe like I was with my friend who was like this I would say like handsome guy and like we were just walking around and people just like kept offering to do things for him and they wouldn't offer to do for me. And I was thinking like, oh, this is actually really weird. And then I would also ask some people working at these galleries like about the artists because I was kind of like maybe flexing a little bit, but I would just know things and I'd be like, oh, you know, like Sherry Levine, she's an artist, like a feminist artist who's made a lot of appropriations of Andy Warhol and Walker Evans as a way to like kind of subvert this dominance of like male imagery. And like there were people, there, there were staff who were like, I don't know, I don't think that's her. And then I'll have to like pull up the Wikipedia <laughs> article and be like, it is her though. And just constantly, like, if you're a woman who's not performing a certain amount of like desirability or attractiveness, there are some people who are like, you're just not even worth talking to. And I'm just like, I know if I just made that effort to put on makeup at the start of every day, people would be nicer to me and people would open doors for me and like doors of my life would literally open. But I'm like, still trying to coast on the fact that like, let's see how far I can get professionally and socially without having to do things I don't really feel like doing. But anyway, that comic was like really hard because I didn't like to like feel like I was calling out people in my own community. Yeah, I mean that specific. I'm curious also about that specific dynamic, as you said, being an androgynous woman, and then kind of within that commentary about misogyny, dealing with your own femininity in a way, or you know that 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 dynamic. Um, I think that's hard for me to unpack as a man, but I'm kind of. <laughs> Uh, curious like how that 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 dilemma sort of worked out in your in your in yourself I think it can take a long time for people who are socialized as women to not see other women as competition and like I know that competition between women is media framed often as like frivolous and silly like maybe hee hee ha ha we both like the same guy at the bar But I actually think it runs really deep in terms of like professionalism and like it impacts almost like every other like aspect of your life. Like there are wonderful like contemporary fiction books being written now about like going to an office and recognizing, let's say, like only other one, one other woman of the same race as you. And it's like you're either in alliance or you're in competition. And I'm like, just I think I had to sort of like start to understand that like even when you're like the only woman in the room, like you don't need to like see other women as like people who are taking the resources that you need or like or taking the one other woman spot it's like we should be mad about the fact there's a woman spot instead of the fact that like they're even like 
is tension between like people competitively professionally because i think that's also natural professionally is to like look at your peers and be like what are they doing oh what's this person with the same background as me doing what's this person with the same degree as me doing and then i think i just had to like learn that like women who let's say um put a lot of effort into their appearance like are not trying to like take opportunities that i can't get as yeah. someone who like is not that like i just think that is not a competitive thing it's more just like everyone is trying to survive with dignity in this world and some people know that they are afforded more dignity when they appear in a certain way and it is their right to access that if they can financially and time-wise and there was this was actually a debate between laverne cox and bell hooks at the new school that i watched on youtube because i wasn't at the actual lecture and laverne is like you know very glamorous and gorgeous and like bell was kind of questioning her about like the lengths she goes to um like glamorize herself to like raise the kind of bar of how people expect women to look because Laverne is like such a beautiful woman then Laverne was kind of like talking about it as her emotional armor as like a black trans woman to like go out into the world full face of makeup heels dressed like almost like a a shield because she knows that like the world is like kind of out to get her so I just thought like they both very validly argued their point like Belle argued that like women should be able to get out of bed and go to work like I remember I was like dating this really computer engineering guy in high school and then we were hanging out once and he told me he just like brushes his teeth and goes to school and I was like he's like sometimes I don't even look in the mirror and I was like wow I've never met someone who just does that but he was also like the first close friend I had that was a boy but I was just like you can just go outside and like be confident that you deserve to be looked at whereas like James I visited South Korea once and I forgotten to pack makeup but I was also like oh whatever it was like 2018 and people would come makeup women would come out of stores and like grab my shoulders and say to me which my friend who is Korean translated for me are you sick like what's wrong with your face there's like nothing on your face like oh my god you came out like that are you okay so it's just like a very powerful thing and then also me needing to learn like it's not me versus these women who just need to sell makeup to get by it's us versus like this whole commodified system of appearance and fashion, which impacts men too. And it's just like, how can we learn to respect people that might not fit the appearance mold? Cause like, that's one of the last, I feel like social prejudices that are very hard to talk about. Like people don't like to talk about disability and people don't like to talk about looks because like looks gets into like race and it's just like really uncomfortable. And people are like, I don't want to acknowledge that I feel like this guy who I work with who's very attractive is like getting a lot of opportunities. Like it just feels like, or like gets away with things. Like I remember one time collaborating with this man who I feel like was barely doing anything, but he was extremely like conventionally attractive. And then I had a lot of like straight female coworkers who were like, oh, he's great though. And I was like, yeah. is he great? He hasn't like sent me that thing I asked for like five yeah. weeks ago. So yeah. like looks play a role in how we can get by like professionally yeah. and socially. And I just needed to learn, like, it's not me versus people and women who, like, want to, like, look good. But it's just, like, mm-hmm. me still wanting to advocate that I deserve to, like, have a job and like or, like, make work in this world and, like, maybe even speak in public and do public speaking without having to, like, contort my appearance in ways that, like, don't always feel natural for me. Um, and right. I just I just want to get that modicum of respect for, like, literally everyone because I think that we deserve and we, we, don't, we shouldn't have to keep like putting on a performative drag more than more than all work is ready a performative drag right so it's like we already must perform and like act and then if we also have to do the appearance some of us might find that just like a little bit too much effort i don't know maybe i'm lazy i don't know (laughs) 
I mean, it's a um, lot easier for guys to be lazy than it is for yeah, women, obviously. support now we love hearing from the design community call us at 202-507-9158 please share your story with us after the tone we'll do our best to respond on our podcast please leave a name or alias design role and location thank you for your call to hear like how do you balance stories that you know because they're coming from a personal place like stories you feel that like you need to tell as like a, a, a storyteller and as an individual and then um, also stories that may resonate with your audience and I think this also kind of gets into what you were talking about earlier Caitlin about like making work that is for a English-speaking I'm not going to say it doesn't have to be Western because it could be English speaking people in all anywhere. Um, but like in the, con- they're, they're, those stories are also taking place in the context of a place that's not English speaking um, or the topics might be from a world that is not in the English, English speaking world. And just like that tension, not maybe not tension, but that play between yourself and where you stand in the world with the audience that you might be speaking to. I find that um, our obsessions as artists and designers like are often very like navigating and, and pathfinding. So if something is really plaguing me for like a very long time, because like most people, I have like a drafts box, like an idea box of things I would like to do and work on eventually. Mm-hmm. And if there's one of them that feels like prescient and urgent in ways like you don't even know how to articulate, I sometimes feel like it's worth making, even if after publication, it doesn't receive very much attention, just because you know that it was plaguing you for a reason that you might not even know. And that's why you have to say it, or that's why it's a story that you have to tell. And I think like also it's difficult to talk about the reception of stories and storytelling now without acknowledging the fact that like most of my work is published on social media. And that Mm -hmm. is a uh, platform with rules not made by any of us. So there's also like, incentivization of extremely strong sentiments that may be more immediately surfaceable and that's difficult I think because sometimes I'm trying to make work that feels strange or mysterious and obviously it doesn't Mm -hmm. like track well but at the same time I'm like well it doesn't matter if it didn't track well because I just needed it to be out there and it doesn't matter if I get like a letter about it after from someone saying that I touched them but if 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 I do that's nice I somewhat feel as if like we 
especially if you have intersecting identities, you might not think that things that happen to you are things that other people would resonate with. But um, most of the time, people are just like repressing so much. I don't know if it's just because I live right. in Hong Kong, but I feel like there's an intense amount of like logging and repressing that people do about the things that happen to them. Because sometimes, let's say at the end of the day, you might not even have someone you can talk to about something that happened to you. So you just kind of go to sleep with this weird like movie in your head or something. So in that way, I feel like I'm often just trying to like play out those movies for myself or like those things that I don't even know what happened, but I just need to say that it happened. But also at the same time, not being like a trauma peddler who's like, here's like my pain. And like, I want you to know that I'm hurt where it's like, that's not the only thing I have to say or nor do I feel like that is adding much to the public conversation myself. Like, I also want to make things that I think delight or surprise or just also remind people that like, I think subconsciously I'm trying to like get across that Asians are not like robotic and like calculating right. all the time, which is like a sad thing to still have to say. But I do like notice that presumption about Asians often when I'm with non-Asians that like we are somehow very um, like rigid or that we don't feel when it's like, of course, the one point whatever six billion people who are Asian in this world, like have a lot of feelings or like maybe also have a lot of pain or just complexity that is like as rich and deep as the complexity that we get to see like written in popular essays and books by people of other races. So mm -hmm. I just sort of feel as if like, even if something that's happening to me might feel like weird and niche. And also it's also like making a design, design decision that, you know, might be bad. Like you're like, Oh, I like this, but technically it's like bad, but you're like, let me just make this choice because we just have to like wonder is the ax that we think is going to fall on our head every time we do something bad, like even real. Because it maybe mm -hmm. feels real in school, in your bachelor's degree, or if you have a graduate degree, there is a presumed acts of like judgment or quality when it's like, also, it's good to like, look at your mental Rolodex of like, who do you always go back to? Like whose work is always like a lighthouse into your practice. And some of those people are like really risk-taking, right? So I, I sort of mm -hmm. think I have to let myself like, I always see the quality of where people who I want to be are at. And I'm like, if I even want to get close, I'm really going to have to like let myself like risk failure and maybe even a little bit of humiliation just to know that like mm -hmm. I was willing to go to that place because I'm mm -hmm. like, it took a while to get from like the international school mindset of like, let's try and get good grades to like, let's try to push the artistic practice in ways that are like uncomfortable and maybe at times just like unpopular and uncool. I think it's quite yeah. like, necessary but hard because our time is so incentivized lately so you're almost like i want to make every project a home run because i can only do 10 projects a year right like there is the time money like conundrum but um i sometimes feel like it's hard to sustain a creative practice if you're always asking yourself to operate at those stakes like just turning down the knob turning down the stakes so you can like feel as if it's still fun like going back to that teenage bedroom feeling you had when you were like making stuff and you're like I'm so cool. And like, maybe you, you <laughs> lacked the kind of academic, scholarly, and critical professional self-consciousness that we are all like carrying in a backpack now. So I feel like that's important. It's like, even if I'm not getting over it, just knowing that I'm put, giving myself a lot of shame and, and judgment unnecessarily, just knowing that I'm doing that, I think is helpful for storytelling mm -hmm. and like getting to my, my place. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I relate a lot to the, what you just said is like, I feel like a lot of maturation is like, getting that kind of rebellious stuff out of your system to a degree or like saying like I can make like things about things that people don't think is cool 
But then once you actually do that enough, then it's like not the focus anymore. It's like the focus is like, is it, well, is, am I doing this well or not? But I wonder if that's something you ran into in your work, like earlier on where it was like, am I just doing this because I'm drawn to it? And I'm not actually like focusing on the quality of what I'm putting out or am I just like, how do I do both at the same time? Cause it's hard enough to like get up the courage to just make the thing about the thing. Right. And then it's like, how do you make the thing about the thing? Well, like that, that balance is, is always hard. I think that vulnerability is always hard to convince yourself is like, okay. Um, I'm like trying to work up the nerve to ask this question. Um, <laughs> And I think there's actually an answer to it in a lot of what you've said. But I think that, um, you know, a lot of the topics that you're dealing with right now are very relevant in terms of Asian American identity or not American Asian identity, um, gender stories, and kind of voicing those issues or topics from an Asian perspective. Um, Do you feel like and, and I think like the answer that I've like heard, at least in this conversation, is that you feel a sense of urgency to talk about those things. Um, but like, do you feel like there's any sort of like spotlight on you in terms of like having to tell those stories or like kind of maybe digging into the motivations that you have about those stories right now? Uh, I think it's very difficult to untie the like capitalist art making angle of my life and like the personal Mm -hmm. art making angle now even though I still self-publish and um the Australian Canadian or based in Canada artist Lee Lai um she once wrote like in her comic on on diversity notes on diversity she wrote something like I'm trying to figure out the difference between telling personal stories and selling personal stories Mm. and if you publish like I do sometimes, um, you're also selling the stories. And then that incentivizes one to create things that, as James mentioned, might be more related to identity topics that are how people also like to see Asians also in relation to their identity Mm -hmm. or Asians as thinking about themselves as Asian. When technically, you know, being in Hong Kong, I'm around people who, who don't think of themselves as like Cantonese, but just are because they're around whatever, like 6 million other Cantonese people. So that's a powerful thing. And I used to kind of have this real hang up about cultural critics because I, I love them. Mm. Like I love reading people who write about film and television and novels and basically anything. Or like, let's say like Amanda Hess from the New York times. Like she gets to write about like mm-hmm. gifs for like a thousand words. Right. I was like, that is so cool. And she's also very skilled and talented, but it made me think like, why couldn't I have become one of the professionals who can professionalize thinking deeply and critically about other people's stuff. Because now, like, um, the comic artist Alabaster Pizzo, she once made this joke in her Instagram story that making comics about yourself is like masturbating into a mirror. And like, it's a very crude metaphor, but I'm like, is it not though? Like, I think she was really had a point. Like, there's this kind of like total indulgence of like, your thoughts, your line, drawing you, like, it's so much you. But I also think the reason why I, tended towards that is because um like the other things like just didn't work out like I've pitched a lot of cultural criticism to like various outlets that I've respected and people weren't like weren't buying it right and then but people were buying my identity work so I was kind of like dang I guess if I really want to like uh support myself financially there's also an incentive to tell these kinds of stories which Mm -hmm. now people are writing to me that they feel that they're very 
you know, relevant to their lives. So I'm just glad that little stories about myself could feel relevant to other people's lives in a way that also yeah. I enjoy a lot of like films and diaristic memoir style things. So I'm like, yeah, it's okay to enter that field. But as James said, it's hard not to have like a little bit of creative anxiety about whether one is making things because it's also incentivized by like the mechanisms mm-hmm. of identity politics and capitalism, which I think is very like not yet finished. Like even though yeah. Gina Tolentino has written about the personal essay and talked about maybe it's like rise and fall or like the, the less popularness of it because it's kind of exploitative. I think obviously her points are like salient and true, but at the same time, I still feel as if um, the narratives people are asking for are very specific. And I've seen other creators of certain identities make really amazing work for a long time that's not identity-based and not receive mm-hmm. very much critical funding or attention. And then make one thing that's like very um, related to identity politics or social topics that blows up. And then it's also right. arbitrary, right? It's arbitrary how people's careers actually flourish. I mean, we love to say that it's all hard work and merit, but there are some amazing people I know who I still feel have not gotten their due. So I just mm-hmm. feel as if it's a weird position because then wonders, then one might ask, do you get compassion or not just compassion fatigue, sorry, but more like vulnerability fatigue where it's like, you're being vulnerable again and again. And I feel like we can always course correct. Like in our art and design paths, maybe let's say like we're driving, but we don't have to like fly off the whole road and like fall onto a new road (laughs) to like correct the course. And I feel like the course for me is like, rather than forcing myself to make too many of these like vulnerable comics that people also treat as content because they come out regularly, like let's work on like a 250 page book so I can like hash out different ideas about different people, which... I'm, I'm happy to be doing in this book because it's just like dealing, dealing with people who aren't me, but still tending to things that are important to me, like queer rights and feminism and like life in East Asia, but not having to like circle around my own experience too much. So I think like that was a kind of course correction was me working on a longer book project. Yeah. Like the whole um, identity in the work vulnerability thing. It's like, why is that? So there's like this, group of people who look so down on certain on that or like there's like a kind of like self-loathing that comes with it and just Mm -hmm. it's just one way of expressing like those stories need to be told too I don't know but I guess like what what you're getting at is like that some people feel like they might be um opportunity like come across as opportunistic right or something yeah yeah I think it's like balancing the demand for it as well as the timing and then also just like the personal need to tell the stories that you want to tell. Yeah, you want to ask the question, Drew? There's There's our, <laughs> uh, there's our standard bearing question, which is, uh, can you share a lasting experience from your design career that has affected you emotionally or psychologically? And it doesn't have to be design career, I guess, in this case, because your career is so much more than that, obviously, (laughs) but, uh, whatever career you want to answer that to is fine by us. I, I think I want to talk about being a failed graphic designer and sending my portfolio out to like 50 studios after graduation. A lot of them small, like a lot of them, like five to three person studios. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's a classic mistake there, which is like thinking that like, cold emails do anything even though sometimes they do but there's also I think um we sometimes like carry a lie to ourselves for like a very long time 
And I was lying to myself at the time by saying like, graphic design is the only way I will ever be able to sustain myself in this whole world because I love to make pictures. And like, that's the only thing that people who make pictures can do. So that was the lie I had told myself for like five years as I worked towards this degree in like fine arts um, and art history. And then all those no's were hard because it wasn't just a no for like my general job esteem. It was a no about staying in America. So without a job in America, I would not be able to uh, continue to have my American community that I made at Wesleyan, which was nice to meet people of different races at Wesleyan because my racial friend group in Hong Kong is a little bit more homogenous, reflecting the state of things here. But at the same time, I guess those no's were like the correct answer because they were they were either seeing in me something that would not fit their brand or their studio, which is like a more simple way to look at it. But I'd like to think more philosophically or cosmically, they were just telling me like, you don't really want to be a graphic designer. You really don't. Mm. Like all your work is heavily illustration and storytelling based, which some graphic designers are great at. Um, but at the same time, like they were kind of like, find another shtick. And it was difficult to hear or difficult to receive that silence. I mean, I did actually receive one interview. I I received a number of interviews and then one job offer ultimately in the US, but I would have been um, designing, like making designs for the kinds of t-shirts that get sold at Walmart. And there's like no hate to Walmart, but at the same time I was making merchandise of popular imagery such as Miley Cyrus, NASA, like this company had legally acquired the rights to use this IP and make mass right. merchandise. And I remember thinking, oh, I can do this because I want to be, gra- I, I can like pivot into graphic design still. And I, I'll be working in New York City and like, I'll, I'll be working in Midtown. And like, I did a trial period with this company. And I remember like, there was like one other Asian in the office. There was like 40 people. And there's one other Asian and let's call him Ming. His name was Ming. And then, like, I remember getting to the office with um, a white supervisor, and she's like, you can sit with Ming. And then I went to Ming, and I just immediately was like, is this the Asian corner? And he's like, you bet. There's two of us now. And I was, like, <laughs> laughing, but I also kind of wanted to cry because Ming was, yeah. like, a perfectly cool person. Like, he, he had a good job, like, making money, making the stuff, and it's a perfectly decent way to make a living. And he seemed like a cool person with a life, and I was like, I could be like Ming. But at the same time, I had told my friends about the salary and the benefits and they were like, you are completely being exploited, Caitlin. Like so much so that like it is sad. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll turn this job down. So I did did a few weeks there and then then I told them like, I don't think this is going to work out. And they were like, okay, no worries. Here's your check. Bye-bye. And then I moved back to Hong Kong and very slowly over the course of two years working in like art administration and curation, like started to make my own comics. And it was a much longer path to like finding... Um, a thing that felt very true and honest to me but I'm just glad that like I didn't become a graphic designer in New York even though it's a great thing and like I have a friend who is a graphic designer in New York and she reveals to me like the real troubles and complications of her own life as well as all like the joys and successes of her life so I feel like I just had to also break that like image in my head because it's like really easy to fetishize a career and a lifestyle and it's harder to like Mm -hmm. sustain that career over time and do it every day and be accountable to that career and its pays and its losses. So I just remember thinking like, I had put too much stock into that dream that never needed to be. And I'm kind of glad that someone else helped end it for me, even though like maybe I'll integrate little elements of graphic design into my work now, like like working, collaborating with a designer on my book cover. And like, that feels like a nice way to still tap into like those, those that little side of me, but, but not needing to be like 
yeah, I should have ended up like at, I don't know, Ogilvy or whatever. Like putting way too much stock into these companies and ad agencies who like didn't, obviously were never going to care about me and that's fine. But I was thinking like those people hold my self-esteem and if they let me get there, I can take it. When it's like, they're not the Mount Olympus, they're like companies. Let's just see companies for what they are, which is companies. Like let's not, let's not act as if they are the, the holy grail to like a sense of like design or artistic accomplishment, which actually might be more nebulous, but it's harder to think about that because we always want to like get things more easily. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I, I don't know who your friend who's a designer in New York is, but I don't know where she works, but it is as perfect as, as your, you imagined it. Everything <laughs> is amazing. And I, I, I just want to set the record straight that maybe she needs a different job or they need a different job. Um, just kidding. Also (laughs) on that note, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's also always great to like have the skills of a graphic designer in your back pocket. Like obviously all the work you're doing, like the zines and all this stuff, like you probably wouldn't be able to do as with as much Zell as, uh, you do. So like, there's that kind of like beauty to it too. I think like, um, Dave Eggers was a graphic designer too. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Like he, you can tell it's like, Oh yeah. Like believer and like all your book covers look cool. Like, so there is, that's like, you, you, you're also like still using that, those skills, but like in your own way, which sounds like pretty inspiring and cool. Um, and also I like that that was like some trauma, some positivity, some, uh, there was like a little bit of everything in that one. So Yeah. Some visa loss. Yeah. And that, then that, like, we have friends, we have, like, we have mutual friends that, like, that pressure is real. Like, that visa pressure is really not, like, fun or um, just a complaint. Like, it's, it's really, really not, not an easy path to go. I, we always like to make a mantra. And um, I'm trying to think of, there's just been so many things we've talked about that it's hard to find, like, a your culminating mantra. Live, laugh, love. I think that, yeah. that sums it up. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, you seem like yeah, a real Caitlin. live, laugh, love guest. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no, whatever. What do you think it's going to be? Yeah. Right, this is like our team mantra after this interview. This is, it's like, yeah. Oh, it's like, just like for the conversation, really. Like, it's like a yeah. summation of like yeah. where we've been and where we could go from here. I think I think the idea came from like if we're using the metaphor of this being like a therapy session, it's like, all right, you're gonna go back out into the world and like, what are you gonna say for say to yourself for the next week? Don't hate yourself. Mm. Don't hate yourself. That that's very good. Yeah. You know how that like therapy, they're always like, how do we phrase that as a positive? This is a don't. <laughs> What's the love yourself no but love Love yourself yourself. doesn't mean the same thing as don't hate yourself right i don't love myself i'm I'm starting to get off the self-loathing train and i'm like that's Mm -hmm. already good enough like i I mean you need a bit of it be nice to love yourself but i don't know if i'm like maybe it's like yeah i think don't hate yourself is good because it's like you don't have to like be over the moon about yourself like no one right no one likes to be with somebody who's like i'm the shit like everything i do is great like except as long as i yeah. Well, oh, I mean, that, yeah, we, we all know how he really, really feels about himself. He's very insecure, yeah. but yeah, uh, actually, I think he hates himself a lot. 
but we don't need to go down that route uh, yeah. maybe like hating yourself is tiring recapture yeah, energy like by that. hating yourself less yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. both i think hating your hating yourself is is exhausting or is tiring yeah. sorry it's not very good. sexy that's why i didn't go into copywriting <laughs> i mean yeah but the copywriting is just like people who can say things say nothing in the shortest amount of words that sounds like something so <laughs> you say a lot of things in a lot of words that are actually meaningful so i think it's yeah probably a better yeah. a better route for you yeah 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 this was really fun but thank you for yeah thanks time. again caitlin thanks a lot and uh good morning i guess or yeah. what <laughs>